Why do you exist? What is the fundamental purpose of your presence here on earth? Why do you occupy space on this planet and breathe its air? Many people in our world have really no idea how to answer these questions, and they admit it. French novelist and biographer André Moreau writes candidly this, I quote, Why are we here on this puny mud heap spinning in infinite space? I have not the slightest idea, and I am quite convinced that no one has the least idea. Many people think that they know why we're here, but their answers only identify their current responsibilities or their current interests. I'm here to be a parent to my children. I live to teach. I live to advance a political agenda, to pursue the career that I love or the hobby that I enjoy. But really, when people say that, they're simply talking about what they do, what they like. They're not really saying why they're ultimately here. We might be able to identify what we do, to identify what we enjoy, but if pressed to explain the fundamental reason why they are alive, why they exist, what is the purpose of being here, many people really have no answer. We've gathered here today, and as our songs have indicated, as our prayers have indicated, as our reading of Scripture has indicated, we know why we exist. We know why we are here. We rejoice that as born-again, Bible-believing followers of Jesus Christ, that we have heard God's Word, and His Word reveals that we are created in the image of God. We are created. He are given life here as His vice-regents on earth to live in obedience to His Word, to spread the news of His saving grace in Christ. And then with every ounce, generally, in every, with every ounce of our lives, to magnify the splendor of God in all things. This is why we exist. We have a purpose, a reason to be here. We live, as the Catechism puts it, to love God and enjoy Him forever. This is more than how we simply pass our days. It is the fundamental purpose for life. It is our eternal destiny. But as vital as it is for us to know our purpose as individuals in this waking world, it is equally important that we know our purpose as a local church. Why do we exist as individuals? Why do we exist as a gathering of individual believers in Christ. Why do we exist as a church? Many churches, like many individuals, have no clear answer on this question. They might tell you what they do, but they do not embrace a biblically sound or unified sense of their God-given purpose. Why they are gathered together, they can tell you things they do, things they like, experiences that they have that are important for them, but why is the church the church? Why do we exist here? Many have no idea, and in consequence, many churches calibrate their purpose to the world of business. They exist to continue to succeed financially, and perhaps no one would ever say that, 
But when it really gets down to how they do church, that's really what it's about. There are others that calibrate their purpose to the dictates of education or social activism, the aspirations of a political party, to modern psychology. We're gathered here. We want to feel good about ourselves or to get things straightened out in our lives, something along these lines. But we rejoice as Bible-believing people that God's Word reveals our purpose as a body, as an assembly. And that purpose is God's gift to us. It is for our joy, for the glory of His name. He explains to us in written Scripture why we exist. And I think then as we find ourselves as a church in transition to a new facility, I think this is a very fitting time for us to consider why we continue on. What is our purpose as a church? Do we understand clearly, all of us, why we are here in this place, on this planet? What is our purpose? Why has God given us life together? During our last stay in this school, way back in the ancient days of 1995, we had a brief stay here for that period. And one of the things that I think was most fruitful about that time that we did just happened to be where we were, but our adult class read through most of the New Testament. Gathering each Sunday, we read through most of the New Testament, and we combed through it asking the question of why is the church here? What is its purpose? And I'm, I'm pleased to say 16 years later, here we are following that same document that came out of that, our statement of purpose. Not something that we found on the internet, not something we read in a book, but something that we read in the book. Why are we here? What is our purpose? We follow that same purpose because it is revealed in Scripture. And I think then as we move to a new building, to some degree redefine our ministry in the sense that we're in a new location, in a new facility, which will in some level define how we minister and how we operate. I think it's important for us here to clarify our purpose, to reaffirm the purpose of our existence as a church. As we think of this, we have to kind of find some hooks to tag things to, and we can really look at it from in three relational perspectives, an upward orientation, an inward orientation, an outward orientation. The inward orientation as we look at one another, and the outward as we look to a world that does not know Christ as Savior. But today I'd like to draw our attention in a very specific way to this upward orientation, to our relationship to God. As we consider God, why are we here? What is our purpose? Why do we exist? Let me say up front, as our statement of purpose says, and as we as a church affirm, that we exist to magnify God's name. We are created as the body of Christ to glorify Him. The theory of that, the statement of that is one thing. The outworking of it is something entirely other. But I don't think that the outworking of that purpose to glorify God is really solid until we have a sense of His revelation and what He has done, and why He has brought us together to glorify His name. I think really all of written revelation points this way. And 
I want to just very briefly sketch as we think through the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the worship of God was the defining purpose of God's people. If we think of that context and that, that nest that is, is provided in the Old Testament, we, we could begin to fill in those blanks pretty clearly, each one of us, and we might trace it a bit differently. But just to highlight a few points, God created us for worship, and we witness this reality in the life of the first family, don't we? We find in Genesis chapter 4, as representative of the godly line of people, ultimately, Abel offers a sacrifice to God in worship. We find this first family worshiping God. And after Abel dies as the first martyr, Genesis 4 ends with this statement. I'm going to just kind of highlight a few ideas from the Old Testament. We'll move to a text in the New Testament here in a, in a moment. But we're going to spend a little bit of time just thinking through this. That passage, and if you care to think on that, to turn there to Genesis 4, that's fine. Otherwise, just listen. But that passage in Genesis 4 ends with this statement. People began to call upon the name of the Lord. As I have studied that passage, I do not believe that means that people discovered prayer. Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. We have the first family worshiping and offering sacrifice. I don't think it means they discovered prayer. I think what it means is that for the first time, people began to gather together to call on the name of the Lord, to gather together as the godly people following in Abel's line. They began to assemble in distinction from others, calling on the name of the Lord together. And as we continue through the book of Genesis, we come to Abraham. In Genesis 12, God calls Abraham out of Mesopotamia, choosing him by sovereign grace alone, choosing this man to be the father of a great people. And as the text of Genesis unfolds, we find Abraham, one theme, we find him building altars throughout the promised land. Here and there, erecting an altar as a center of the worship of God. In Genesis 22, in fact, Abraham faces the stiffest test of his life in the context of worship as he gives his son to God in sacrificial devotion. It is about His life is about worship. And as the people of God continue to develop, we come to the uh, children of Abraham, to the Israelites, and we come to the Exodus. One On the night before the Exodus from Egypt, God constitutes the Passover festival in which the Israelites will forever commemorate their deliverance from Egypt. Now think about that. He talks to them about their worship of Him before the event. Saying, I think, in, in a number of things, but saying that He knows what will take place, certainly, but also that worship is all important. That they will celebrate forever the saving grace of God who will deliver them from Egypt. He talks about Passover remembrance before the deliverance. Forever after then, God's deliverance of Israel from slavery will serve as a paradigm of His saving purposes for His people. Salvation results in ongoing worship. They're delivered from Egypt. They continue to commemorate this and remember the Lord in the Passover celebration. Then we come to tabernacle and temple, and that's very obvious, isn't it? 
But as the nation leaves Egypt, we witness the establishment of the tabernacle where the people of Israel will meet with God according to the prescriptions of this ritual worship of the Lord. And we know that the tabernacle plays a very significant place in Israel's history, as does then the temple and then the second temple. Israel is always oriented toward this place. Do you remember that phrase in Deuteronomy? Over and over that phrase where the Lord will choose to place his name. Where the Lord will, he will find, there will be a place in the promised land where the Lord will objectify his presence. And everything would be moving toward that place of worship. The kingdom of priests, Israel, was to point the nations to the splendor of God who created his people for worship. They existed to magnify the name of God on earth and thus to announce his name to the watching world. All of this pointed forward, we understand. In the sacrificial system, in the temple is the meeting place of God. God was all along pointing forward to the ultimate meeting place with God, to the final Lamb of God who dies to take away the sin of the world. The New Testament book, if you'd say, where is the book that talks most about salvation by faith? We'd say, well, Romans, that's really the center of that message. If we ask the question, what book talks most about the nature of the church, its purpose, and its formation? I think most would say the book of Ephesians. We study this book often. We study it carefully and for very good reason because it speaks about our nature and who we are. And what I'd like to do with what remains here of our time today is to survey the first half of this book together. I'm going to ask for your uh, cooperation. Again, as we say, if you have the ESV, you can read with us, and if not, you can speak in tongues or uh, just listen uh, as we read. But we're going to ask you to actually read sections of Scripture here together. Now, as we do that, let me prepare you might seem a little odd for us all to be reading all of this text together. Don't think about that. Don't think about your voice. Don't think about the people around you. Don't think about the person who just messed up next to you, or if it's you who messed up. I want you to think, let's try to work hard to say, I'm going to lose myself in the text and reading out loud to really seek to discern the purpose of the church in these texts. Chapter 1, let's read together the first 14 verses. Ephesians 1, verses 1 through 14, reading in unison together. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, 
which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So, thinking through it, just a few conclusions. We bless God with words of praise in response to what he has done. What has he done? Here is the awesome wonder of it. In Christ, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. We don't get a partial package it's not something to work on as far as what he gives us, but we've received every spiritual blessing in Christ. Before the foundation of the world, God chose us to be his children, those who have come to faith in Christ. According to his good pleasure and will, he marked out a people for his name, choosing to cleanse us from our sin. This is God's eternal purpose to accomplish this work, and he accomplishes this by the sacrificial death of his son in our place. So according to the counsel of his will, God purposed then to sum up all things in Jesus, and he united us with Christ, the cosmic center of all things. So God delivered us from the judgment by the work of Christ, and we are now sealed by the promised Holy Spirit for a specific reason. Why is it in the end that God has done all of this? What purpose does this serve as we are at the heart of this plan? We read it over and again, haven't we? We sing that song from time to time to the praise of his glorious grace. There it is in verse 6. All of this is to the praise of his glorious grace. We find it again in verse 12, to the praise of his glory, and in verse 14, to the praise of his glory. It's not like this is a hidden concept. The purpose of God's saving grace in our lives, the purpose of his saving the church, is for the praise of his glory. In light of this cosmic salvation scheme centered in Christ, the apostle now breaks into prayer for the believers. Let's read together verses 15 to 23 as we look at this prayer of the apostle. Reading together at verse 15 through the end of the chapter. Verse 15, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, 
according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The Spirit pleads in these verses that we would get it. That we would grasp the meaning and the wonder of our salvation in Christ. This is one of the reasons I come to the assembly. So many others, but this is one. My perceptions are dull. I plead with God to awaken my perceptions to His glory and to the wonder of His grace. And this is what we see here in this passage, in this prayer. A prayer that we would fully comprehend the cosmic lordship of Jesus Christ who reigns victoriously over all things and is now the head of the church which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. I don't know that I can fully conceive of that statement. And He is the head of the church which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. But I expect through all eternity to become to come to an understanding of that glory. He is the head of His church, filling all in all. It all centers in Christ. From these grand strains then of redemptive glory, Paul narrows in on the participation that the believer personally has in this grand redemptive account. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Let's read together. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Verse 1 and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're not pretty good people that Jesus has decided to help out a little bit. We were dead in our sins spiritually lifeless, eternally hopeless. By nature, we are slaves to the passions of the flesh. We have cravings and desires that work against the will of God, that dishonor Him. That is who we are by nature. We want what is wrong 
We want what dishonors God, and we are content in our sin. That's our nature. But God chose to lavish upon us His rich mercy and infinite love by opening our eyes to the truth of the gospel. This is who we are, but in His mercy, this is what Christ has done. And why does He do it? Why is this that He saves us? We can find no answer in ourselves. Why is it that He saves us? It's verse 7. Consider it again. So that, there's our purpose, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We are saved so that in us throughout all eternity the splendor and incomparable riches of God's grace will be put on display. You hear that phrase, we are the trophies of His grace. We are put on display to speak of the wonder and the glory of what He has accomplished. There's a team. I can tell you which one I hope it is, but I won't do that here. But there's going to be a team that wins a trophy in this basketball tournament that's going on right now. If you don't know anything about it, that's all right. There's just basketball teams playing, and one of them is going to win a trophy as the champion of the NCAA. That trophy is going to get put in a case and is going to forever remind people of the wonder of what that trophy accomplished. It's ridiculous, isn't it? It's not what the trophy accomplished. The trophy speaks of the glory of the team that won that tournament, and it will stand that way forever. As long as this earth lasts and that trophy lasts. We are that trophy of God's grace. For all eternity, we will stand in the presence of God as a display of the wonder of what Christ has done. Not what the trophy has accomplished, but what He has accomplished will forever be praised. And obviously, the analogy falls apart because we're trophies that have mouths and hands and legs, and I believe we will serve the Lord through all eternity, rejoicing in what He has accomplished in us and through us and continues to throughout eternity. Notice verse 7. This is the purpose of our salvation. It is that His name might be magnified throughout all eternity. His grace will be seen for the wonder that it really is. So, we are not saved by works. When we went through this book some years ago, we took a lot of time to talk about that word for. I don't have time to do that today. Take the word for in verse 8 and ask yourself later today, do I really get why it says for? We tend to start when we quote Ephesians 2 at verse 8. But remember, verse 8 is a for. It's an implication of what comes before. What comes before is we are saved as trophies of the grace of God for eternity. That is why we're not saved by works. No glory goes to us. It all goes to Him forever and ever. That's our purpose. That's who we are. We're saved by His grace alone, not the result of works. I may speak to some here among us today who have not come to a place where you would say, I am a follower of Christ. I have trusted Christ as my Savior. He owns me. 
you say, I don't know if I'm too comfortable with that. You've not come to a place where you've put your faith and your trust in Christ. You do not have a sense that you've been born again. One line, I don't know that you use it, but many people do often that are not followers of Christ, is say, I see so much hypocrisy in the church. See, all this hypocrisy. Well, that's true. You certainly do. But let's be honest and say, as you point your finger to the hypocrisy of those who follow Christ, honestly, you have to admit, behind that, you're hiding your own sin, your own unfaithfulness, the way you've hurt people and the way that you've turned away from God. Yes, they don't do all that they're supposed to do. But also, as you point the finger and point at the hypocrites in the church, you're not recognizing that God is changing people. He doesn't change them into perfect people. Slowly but surely, he is transforming them. And I think if you listen to their testimony of how God has worked, you will hear that people really are changing. Not all of them. Some of them are fake. They really aren't believers. But there are those that he's changing and delivering slowly from sin. It's not a... Jesus doesn't save us absolutely and completely in a moment of time. He does save us forever in that moment. But He is changing us and saving us progressively until we enter into His presence. You need to understand, as you find hypocrites in the church, every person in the church says, yes, there's hypocrisy among us. There's sin in our lives. But the truth of the matter is that we are all born dead in our transgressions and sins. We are lifeless to the truths of God and to the work of the Spirit. But here is the great news that in the mercy of God, Jesus Christ, and in His mercy, He is greater than our sin. You can be saved from judgment and forgiven of sin as you come to trust what Christ has done. It's not about being perfect because it's not by works which we have done but according to His mercy that He saved us. I become a trophy of His grace. I don't get congratulations for having won the game. I'm not congratulated because I was such a good person that God saved me. Rather, I simply point to the mercy of God to save sinners. And maybe in that, as a sinner, as a hypocrite yourself, you say, I see that and I want it. Turn from your sin. Receive the saving grace of Christ today. Receive it as a gift. Now this display of transforming grace is evidenced in our lives individually. But the emphasis of Ephesians falls on the corporate display of grace. And let me gain your attention here. We move from considering God saves individuals by His grace but this is also then true of His church as a whole. There is a corporate sense of our salvation. And that's what is now brought out in verse 11 and following. It is our life together as the body of Christ that we announce to the watching world that we are the workmanship of God, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Yes, we remain sinners. Yes, there are hypocrites in the church. But we are on this mission to carry out the good works that He saved us to fulfill. Together, we're called to this. 
We're not individual franchisees that come here in the church working with God and having nothing to do with one another. Rather, as a body, we are called together to live out this life. Notice this emphasis now as we read verse 11 and following. Notice the emphasis on the uniting of people in the body of Christ. Reading together at verse 11 through the end of the chapter, Ephesians 2.11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together goes into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, there's no way we can concentrate on this passage and miss the concept that the saving grace of God working in our lives individually is working in us as a body. There's a corporate idea here. The transforming power of the gospel, by that power, God reconciled us in one body, bringing two distinct people together in a way that only the grace of God could accomplish, a peace that was accomplished by Christ. So the quintessential place where God now meets with his people is not on a temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. We join now as living stones as the church, forming the holy temple of the Lord, the place where God dwells by His Spirit on earth is His church. This is where He dwells, with us. It is this glorious union then of disparate bodies united in the body of Christ that explodes like glorious fireworks from the gospel. This is the message of uniting in Christ, of bringing together people into one body, reconciled, at peace, because of what Jesus alone could do. And then in 3, 1 through 13, Paul further explains the contents of this message of reconciliation of Jew and Gentile in one body, as well as his personal role as one who proclaimed this truth. So getting the sense as Ephesians develops, it is about my trust 
in the death and resurrection of Christ that delivers me from my sin, but in that I am united in a body of believers. Notice the emphasis of this again as we continue chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Keep pushing. We're getting here. 1 through 13, Ephesians 3. Let's read together. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. What is the point? What is the point of God reconciling believers to one another in Christ? Why does he do this? Why does he form this unique body of people? The answer is again in verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. It's made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That is, to the angelic realm. Apparently, only they ultimately are able at this point to conceive of this as far as a creature can conceive of it. But our life together as the reconciled body of Christ, as the temple of God, puts the wisdom of God's saving grace on display for the angels to see. God has planned this through eternity. That we, as these weak, sinful, humble people, gathered in the church, will display to the watching angelic realm the wonder of God's grace. It's really cosmic in its proportions. And as the angelic realm then sees Jews and Gentiles and every other category of people that don't typically get along, separated peoples, as they see all of them uniting together around Christ, they are filled with wonder. These are people that should be at war. They're people that are at peace with one another. Christ binds them together in a unique way. God alone can do this. And thus, God alone is to be praised for this work that he does. Again, Paul prays that the Ephesians would catch all of the wonder of this 
in verses 14 and following. Let's read down through verse 19. 14 to 19 of chapter 3, reading at verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So the Spirit wants us to grasp who we truly are in Christ. Again, this is one reason I come to church. My perceptions are so poor. But gathered with His people, singing the songs of the new life, reading Scripture together, edifying one another, our perceptions are slowly pulled higher. Our eyes are slowly open to the glories of Christ. But these glories are on display everywhere in this universe. And we, by the grace of God, will get it. We'll conceive of it. We'll see the wonder of God's work in saving the church. As Paul thinks on this glorious salvation, as he thinks now on the church's purpose, not just my rescue from hellfire, which I deserve, but the church's union in Christ, uniting peoples to display the glory of His saving, reconciling, peace-producing power. As we grasp all of that, Paul now rounds out the first half of this doctrinal section of this book with this doxology. Let's read it together, verses 20 and 21. Verse 20. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Notice that phrase. To Him be glory in the church. Verse 21. To Him be glory in the church. And in Christ Jesus. Now we stop there and say, well, certainly and obviously the glory of God is displayed in Jesus Christ. As assuredly as that is the case, so it is to be the case that the glory of God is displayed in His church. The church of hypocrites, the church of sinners, the church of weak people, but people being transformed by this grace and united with one another. So the glory of God seen in the face of Jesus Christ is to be seen in the assembly of believers. This is our creative purpose. This is why we gather. This is why we get up in the morning. Our church exists to praise God's glorious grace. I exist to magnify His splendor, to stand as a trophy of His grace, but we, working together in a unique way, united in Christ, stand as a display of His grace in this universe. That's why we exist. That's why He saved us. We are a window 
through which the splendor and wonder of Jesus is witnessed. How we display His glory as the body of Christ takes up the remainder of the book. As it begins to now work out practically, how do we display this glory as a body in our relationships with one another? But again, I'd like us to focus, and, what, and the reason that I brought these three chapters together today, which is a bit unusual to take that length of section, but I trust that it all will now come to bear on this phrase. It hinges on this statement in verse 21. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. To Him be glory in the church. So let us join in spirit today. Let us affirm together as a congregation that we exist to exalt the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's why He has given us life. That's why we exist. That is our purpose. We are left on this planet to display to a lost world and to display to the angelic realm the glories of God. This means that in everything we undertake as a church, our decided purpose must be to magnify God as we pursue intimate fellowship with Him and with one another. We exist to be a worshiping, praying, singing, Scripture-loving church for the express purpose that we find our joy, our satisfaction, our eternal home in God. This is where we find it. This, then, is our life, and we display that life. That, indeed, is the reason we live why we exist. We glorify Him by growing up in Him and doing the good that He created us to do as a body. Not simply as individual Christians on our own, but as a body working together to accomplish the good that Jesus saved us to do in this world. So in everything then that we undertake as a church, our purpose must be to magnify Him. To glorify the Lord. To say by our existence together, Jesus Christ is our Savior. Jesus Christ is our life. Jesus Christ is our Lord and reigning sovereign. And He has given us life, rescuing us from the eternal judgment of our sin so that we might bring glory to Him our Lord, and our Savior. I trust by the grace of God that as we transition from one town to another, from one building to another, that we will remain focused on our purpose to glorify the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why we are here. That is why we have life. And that is our privileged mission in the, with this world to say that Jesus is great and greatly to be praised. Let's bow together for prayer. Father, we lift up together prayers of confession. We confess that we do not love you with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, that our love is weak, that the display of your glory is clouded by the sin that pervades in our lives. 
We acknowledge before you that we fall short of your glory, that we fail in our obedience to your word, in our demonstration to the angelic realm and to a watching world of the transforming work of your grace and the presence of your spirit. We confess humbly before you that we are not what we should be. But we rejoice together. In some ways, Father, I'm sure many would agree with me, we're just overwhelmed by the wonder of Your grace, the eternal purposes, the sovereign, predestinating purposes, the transforming work that You had planned from eternity past, and the trophy of grace that Your church is. Father, we long for that day when we will celebrate through all eternity free of sin and praise You for Your amazing grace. I pray that we will learn to lift our voices in songs of praise, that we will learn to pray with fervor before You. God, deliver us from simple lists of prayers as much as we need to take them to You. I pray that we would learn to pray with thanksgiving and joy, rejoicing in our salvation. I pray that we would learn to contend for the glory of Your name through our prayers in this world and that You will spread that glory through our prayers, through our lives, through our witness, and through the display that this church makes of the union that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not sufficient for these things but we know that You are. And by Your Spirit, I pray that You will deepen us in our created purpose to exalt the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank You for giving us life together and calling us to this high calling. May we be faithful to this end in this coming week. Open doors of opportunity for us to proclaim the mystery of Christ. And may we learn to live out faithfully this purpose as a body. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.